News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorker's podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan here with Dr. Christina Greer. Hello there. So stick around to hear an interview from our friends at Vital City between physician and epidemiologist Jay Varma and sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, author of the newly published book, 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. But for now, let's jump right in with some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York City. The FBI last week raided fire department offices and the homes of two fire captains as part of a corruption probe. Mayor Adams is not implicated in this probe, and an administration spokesperson said this is all unrelated to the other probe into the mayor's campaign financing. That probe continues, as far as we can tell, as the mayor kept a low-key schedule last week that included visiting Albany for caucus weekend, which I call cold Somos. Hmm. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul said she would attack Canada if the country ever attacked her native Buffalo in a ham-fisted defense of Israel's war on Gaza. She later apologized after her words were seen as justifying genocide. Former President Donald Trump released a pair of subjectively hideous sneakers on a week where Attorney General Tish James ordered he pay a $364 million fine and lose the ability to operate a business for three years in a fraud trial. Later today, Republican candidate Nikki Haley is planning a campaign speech, although we're not sure what she'll talk about. So we'll see what that is about. But Chrissy, I wanted to get your take. I know we can't see into the future. We can't see what Nikki Haley is going to talk about. But I'm going to first have you talk about the Trump ruling, whether you think New York City will actually see this money, your thoughts on the three-year ban, and then how you think that this fine may affect the 2024 presidential election. Okay. So before I get into that, I just want to let you know, did you know that I used to work for the fire department when I was yes. a Coral Fellow? Yes. Like crazy. With Commissioner Von Essen. What um, do you know? What do you know? What are you trying to say? You know, so no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm in the know. This is from 25 years ago. Um, <laughs> but I worked at Metro Tech on the floor that, you know, no one was allowed on. Um, so here we are with this man who's just like a bad penny who keeps showing up. Congratulations to Tish James, right? I mean, even as she dealt with like death threats and Trump essentially, you know, calling her all types of massage noir in public. And attacking her consistently, she was like, hey, listen, run me these checks. I don't think New Yorkers will ever see this money, you know, and lots of people disagree with me. That's that's fine. But I'm like, this man has never, Donald Trump has never really paid his debts. This is a massive debt. I don't think he has the money, first of all. But I just don't think that this is something that is going to be a priority for him. I think what we should also discussed, though, is the three-year ban on operating a business. Because now we see this is why he's hawking sneakers, because he can't open up a proper business in New York. I think three years is honestly a very short period of time, but it's still um, something. And then these sneakers. First of all, is he going to be hit with another lawsuit for the sneakers because they have a red bottom? And we know that Christian Louboutin has the patent on all things red bottom, especially in that area of red. So I'm curious, like, is he asking for more lawsuits or does he just not do any research with his folks? It's just he's got incompetent people. The sneakers are objectively hideous. I mean, listen, I love a gold or silver shoe for sure, but not that. I just think that it goes to this long line of him just grifting and shilling anything, right? We've had stakes, we've had universities, we've had water, we've had ties, we've had coins, we've had NFTs, we've had what else? Hats. I mean, in a in a more um strategic way, let's just say he did have 
you know, legit people working for him. And this conversation about like Black and Latino men, you know, leaning towards Trump. I'm curious if the same way the red hats indicate, you know, his support, like he can look out in a mass of people and see Mm -hmm. his supporters. I'm curious if he's trying to sort of target Black men since he thinks, you know, like they're super into him. A small segment of the population might be sort of Black people are inherently conservative in a lot of ways. But um, if that is the case, let's just say he is making steam with, say, this younger Black leaning conservative um, demographic, is this his way of seeing, physically seeing his level of support, right? Like how many people are walking the streets with my gold sneakers on, not just Black people, but like people in general, you know? I just also think though, this, his demographic of like white folks, I just don't see them wearing gold sneakers. Like I just, so I, I wonder if this is a ploy for Young Black voters, since, you know, the scuttlebutt is that they're, you know, leaning towards Trump, which, again, even if Black men are leaning towards Trump, they're still overwhelmingly less likely to vote for Trump than white people, Latinos, and Asians. Like, that's, those are just facts. So, yeah, but I'm like, who are these sneakers for besides Russian oligarchs, right? Because we know that the person who paid, what was it, $9,000 right. a pair of those shoes was a Russian CEO. So it's like, the grift is just always the grift. I mean, before it was smash and grab when he had four years in the administration, I think this is why a second term of Donald Trump is even more dangerous because he already knows sort of the stop gaps. He'll never hire like a Sessions or a bar again because they actually were like, hey, this is a bridge too far. I actually right. can't, you know, totally throw out the Constitution. So he won't have any of those people around him this second time around. You know, it'll be like he's running his businesses. He'll run them into the ground and then he'll, you know, pick up the scraps. I mean, he will literally sell this country for parts. Um, He tried to do it the first time. And I think because he's had some practice, he'll definitely do it the second time. I think white people will buy his sneakers. I think, um, yeah, I think. Like old white people? You think like a 60-year-old in Minnesota is going to be walking around with gold sneakers? I think because of who's selling them. I don't think they, you know, I I think. You're right. Um. And, you know, the, the the sneakerhead culture, right? I mean, this was released at a sneaker con, so obviously it's it's sort of like this huge part of the culture. It um, White people co-opted it from, you know, black people sure. in terms of that culture. I mean, so there's plenty of white Add it to the about. list. The January 6s, as someone called. Which I, I call them the I like the Jordan 6s, yeah. P.S., Jan- though, I wasn't here last week because I was in Portland at the Nike campus, and I bought my first pair of Jordans. Which Jordans mm-hmm. did you get? Some gray ones. I'll send you the picture. But what number? You know, I'm an Air Max person. Oh, I don't. Oh, I don't know. They've got numbers. Uh, they're gray. <laughs> Girl, come on. <laughs> I I love sneakers too. I don't own any Jordans. Um, I always wanted like the Jordan ones, the St. John's color ones. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask you too. Like, once we figure out the sneakers, I also love Air Maxes. Do you think this fine, right? Ordered by Tish James. I was talking to some friends who said, no, this will just increase his popularity. Right? It'll embolden him. I know there was some chatter about truckers boycotting New York um, because of this fine, which they say will trickle down, you know, just having less products so things will go up. But I I just feel that this, his fan base is so loyal and they already hate New York. They already hate Tish James. So this will just continue to embolden him. But I don't know what your take is. Yeah, I mean, well, anything he does will embolden his supporters. Like, they are in 10 toes in. So... Like, he's always the hero and victim of his own story. So at at once, it's like, I fought New York, and, you know, I'm defending us from these woke, you know, negresses who were trying to prosecute me. But then, at the same time, it's like, I'm a victim, and they're, you know, they're prosecuting me. So his supporters are 
are always going to be with him no matter what. This kind of boycott, trucking boycott, I'm like, first of all, a lot of these truckers, you don't own your own truck or said company. So, like, you know, what's that? Um, I don't really see that affecting our economy at all. Um, But I think, you know, his supporters are there past the point of being supporters. I mean, they are blind loyalist sycophants. I mean, the woman who came up at SneakerCon was like, this man's a Christian. I mean, she's crying. It's like, you know, he's like no other. I was like, you mean the thrice married, sort of formerly pro-choice, you know, dare I say, you know, uh, womanizing um, sexual assault accusations in the double digits, um, who hates immigrants even though he's married to and four of his five children are children of immigrants. He speaks about women and immigrants as animals. I mean, like, what part of the Bible are you looking at? Because there's nothing about this man that screams he's a Christian. But, I mean, his supporters are, like, ravenous. I mean, they like, in parts of the country, I think Sally Goldenberg, um, you know, reported on this. It's like, they think that he's a messiah. Like, they literally think that he's, like, the second coming. And I'm like, the second coming of what? Like, it's, it's frightening that he was able to inspire so many people on January 6th. And I think that that dedication and loyalty has just grown, you know, like the way he's able, I mean, the Democrats are horrible at marketing and framing things and he's really, really good at it. And he also can get his formerly decent Republican colleagues to just fall in line, whether it's because he's blackmailing them or what, I don't know, but these grown men who were once, you know, we disagreed on policy particulars, but like, they supported the Constitution and genuinely loved the country and wanted to move it in a direction. Right. I may have disagreed with the direction, but, like, they were still working in, I thought, a relatively good faith effort to do things as Republicans. And we don't see that, by and large. I mean, these are people who are just like, whatever he says goes. And, I mean, he's literally told us he could shoot someone. He's literally told us he could grab women and assault them. I mean, and they don't care. So when you're dealing with that type of fealty. When you're dealing with that type of person, you know, they're they're unmoved and I think quite dangerous. For the listeners, Chrissy got a pair of Jordan 1s. She sent me a picture. Oh, I did? <laughs> oh, geez. In the gray colorway. Um, so is that, what does that mean? What is... It's the first, I mean, you know... Of there's the like Jordan, 28 of them, right? Yeah, so that I went was to the, the first museum. one. Yeah, she or the, went to the, the museum, Jordan, yeah. Like the Jordan building. Right. So this was the Jordan one. It was the first one. If you've seen the movie about it, this was... Uh, I have not seen the that. movie. It's actually pretty good. And well, I, I will say this. Anyone who's interested in architecture, this is like a dream. And it's also built on like some nature preserve. I was like, oh, wow. Mm, did you build I've around or in? Yeah. And I was like, I saw birds. I took pictures of just nature. I mean, it's epic. And I'm very rarely impressed. You know, it's like, I went to fancy schools. You know, we've seen fancy stuff. New York is amazing. I travel yeah, all yeah. the time. Like, eh, everything's just like, yeah, it's it's lovely. You know, this, I was like, mouth wow. agape. I was just like, you know how things feel like money? Yeah, oh, yeah. This felt like money. Right. Like, the Serena building, I sent this to to Ben Max, our, you know, podcast sibling, Um in the cafeteria in the Serena building, it's like a whole U.S. Open vibe. So it's like lots of pictures of New York. And like where you put your dishes is like the 7 Subway Willits Point. <laughs> Which, like you know, U.S. Open fans, don't use, they all take tra- right. cars. Anyway. <laughs> but, is there like, like a hey, black car picking you up? Just like that's the my, U.S. Open? That's my Mets looting apart? Subway stop. But I will say, when I went to a Mets game uh, during uh, the U.S. Open, I mean— 
I will say, on that subway, I was like, you're going to the left and you're going to the right. You can you're going you. to the Mets. You're going to the USA. But I could li- and the the funny thing is the guards who were helping, you know, the, the MTA workers yeah, who were I helping. Knew. They were like, go to the left. <laughs> like Just looking at you, it would be like, you go to the left. They'd look at someone else like, you go to the right. Like, it was great. It was great. So the Serena building, the U.S. Open style, it also is on something that was a public park that got taken. Over. No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, I'm literally the whole campus is like acres upon acres upon acres. Now, I don't know what they're going to do with that Tiger Woods building. Um, oh. But the LeBron building is incredible. The LeBron steps are incredible. It's just like, yeah, I need to go back because I only saw like a small fraction of it. It's that big. Is it open to the general public or only VIPs? Now like you? that, I don't know. A friend of mine works there. So I don't so, think that like you can, I don't know. I don't know. Did your friend get an employee discount? Yes, honey. I got a 40%. She gets a 50%. So I just got two pairs of shoes and a shirt. Wow. But the store is fun. like, uh, it's it's like a massive Nike store. I wanted to switch gears to talk about, ask your take. You know, with this FBI, um, FDNY, the news broke, the Times broke, the story of raiding two, the homes of two captains. And, and there's a lot to explain the, the specificity of the story. But, you know, it got us all thinking about, okay, what is happening with this Eric Adams investigation? When are we going to have some movement or whatever mm-hmm. on it? I just wanted to get your take on, you know, where you th- – I've been watching The Sopranos. I always rewatch The Sopranos, and yeah. I always laugh at how bungly and stupid the FBI people are on the show. <laughs> so I was like, if this is who's in charge – I know it's a fictional show. Don't come for me, FBI. But I just have – Literally. I just have so many questions of when will we see a conclusion, how this sort of – dark cloud over the administration, if it even is a dark cloud over the administration. Right. So just your take on on how that maybe is affecting the mayor and, and how he's operating, and or maybe it isn't at all. Right. Well, what someone told me about, like, the DOJ and the FBI is that by the time they come to you to ask you questions, they have every single answer to their question. Yeah. They just want to know, are you dumb enough to lie to me? when you know I already have all the answers. But they don't come for you until they have all of the answers. So this is why things take so long. And they're like, hey, guess what? I'm not on your schedule. I'm just on the schedule of how the evidence presents itself and our interviews and dotting I's and crossing T's. So I think, you know, you remember with de Blasio and and the housing stuff, it's like, oh, it's taking forever. And it's like, yeah, and we'll figure it out. And they came back and they're like, we got something, but we don't have enough, so we're just going to let you be. But we're not saying you're innocent. We're just saying we don't have enough to move forward. That being said, I think no administration wants scandal around them, right? So don't forget, we just had the big bust in NYCHA, 70 people. That's not Eric Adams' fault. That stuff was going on way before Eric Adams. But it's still a scandal under the umbrella of your watch, your tenure, then the FDNY, again, probably didn't happen or didn't begin to happen during the Adams tenure, but it sort of busted open during his administration. So you you never want, like, the air of, like, is everyone around this man corrupt, right? I mean, like, when people start going down, whether it's the DOJ or the FBI, that changes the narrative, especially since this administration seems to have, like, the Biden-Obama problem, where it's, like, the good things that they are doing, they're not articulating. So, I mean, you know, we talked about this with the state of the city. I had no idea that they were doing so much about deed theft, which directly affects, like, a large percentage of African Americans, which is a huge deal. Um, so, 
I am curious as to see where this goes with the FDNY, because that's also a paramilitary institution. So usually when kind of things like that topple, it's usually not just like two people. You start pulling a thread and things begin to unravel. And we know, just like the police department, the FDNY is like, it's a fraternity. It's a very close fraternity. Um, having worked there, I I talked to a lot of, and you know firefighters better than I, but like, you know, you have to have a fraternity there because it's literally risking your life when you go to work. So you have to like have a, a deep level of trust, like a deep reservoir of like respect and love and trust to be with these people every day. And that, you know, if it's not on the up and up and it turns towards corruption, then that could be a really powerful force uh, of evil and not good. Um, so I think, you know, we're kind of in the wait and see game. And I think for Eric Adams, you know, obviously he's going to move forward with re-election as of now. Um, it's just another anvil kind of hanging over his administration as he tries to move forward. Yeah. I will say, and I, I want to close on this. I don't know if you saw a lot of the uh, drama or the mean tweets over the NYPD dance team. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. I, I have to wrote, say, wait I, a minute. So $100 million was taken away from education, but now we get a kickball change with these. This randos. doesn't, I, you know, I saw the tape. And I said, I mean, as someone who performs in the inner circle, I'm never going to criticize someone's um, performing because not like we're good. But you are amazing. The NYPD has a lot of, and the FDNY mm -hmm. and sanitation, they have a lot of, I call them extracurriculars, boxing, football, the band. baseball, bands, plural. They have a rock, they have a jazz band, they have a salsa band, they have a lot of organizations. And the people going off on Twitter, it felt a little misogynist. Mm -hmm. Some of them, you know, Twitter now under Elon Musk is like, or whatever it's Ugh, called, is, is like incel city. People were being so mean to these women. And they actually spoke on Pix11 this morning, which is where they first performed. This is just an activity that they do. So, and I think I understand, trust me, like covering the budget and where money is taken, where where money is moved around. And, and the fact that the NYPD has such a humongous budget. I understand all that. I don't know, like, these are working professionals trying to, like, relax, you know? They mm -hmm. probably pay for their own uniforms. They they said this morning that it's, no city money goes into it, which is common. So it's just, just, it's just basically an after-work activity. Yeah, there's a ton, you know, like... It's you, like you the equivalent of working at J.P. Morgan and you guys have a softball team. Exactly, right? It's it, So I found some of the tweets to be a little mean. As a woman on the internet... Right. Right. <laughs> who's not skinny i feel that i understand where they people are being very mean uh -huh. um so i just thought that was interesting and i don't know it's it the messaging i think and obviously it's twitter so people don't always it's like there's no nuance on this but right well i think you know it's it's the optics right so right when people are feeling like the budget is not working in their of favor course. or their family's favor and cost of living is skyrocketing and there's a perception of like i'm not feeling safe it's like so these chicks got time to you know do a shimmy shimmy, and are we paying for it? So then, again, that goes to, like, this administration. And it's like, so then, as you roll out the new dance team, let voters know, like, this is a way for us to support our police officers because they're under a lot of stress. We're not paying for it, but, like, you want a happy police officer. I don't want, I don't want a police officer that's got, like, no way to release steam, and then they're right. rolling through my neighborhood. Um yeah, I mean, there's also just so much misogyny and misogynoir that rolls around. I just, you know, trying to block it out. Oh, and also in side news, I saw the Nets fired their coats. 
not like not like anybody cares about the Nets. Um, yeah, I said it. We're Knicks. Are the Knicks team, better now? Oh my gosh, I'm there. No, but they were they were great, and then they had a decline. No, they didn't. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I just don't. I don't amazing. follow the NBA. No, I don't know. I don't. I'm not following their overall score. Every game I go to, they win. So I'm just assuming that the Knicks are amazing. Um, I watched St. John's blow a 21 point lead oh, to Seton awesome. Hall on Sunday, and then the new very rich coach Rick Pitino just insulted the whole team. Which I was like, I don't know how this is gonna work. When they figured out, <laughs> wait, Rick Pitino from back in the day, yes. Rick Pitino. Oh, back in the day, Rick Pitino. He was cleared on all those charges. He's coach of oh, St. John's now. There we go. And everyone, I mean, a lot of people were probably, you know, betting their firstborn children on Rick Pitino's successes. And I can't even check the St. John's Twitter after a game. It's the oh. most It's the most d- depressing group of people I've ever really seen on Twitter. Um, I can't believe, I don't know why, um, I, I don't know why I didn't know that he was here. I always put him in like, he was always like a bootleg Pat Riley to me. A little bit, yeah. I can see that. And Pat Riley is like he's on my Mount Rushmore of just gentlemen. That's that. I mean, I think this episode without Harry, we're almost like a full newspaper. We started with the news <laughs> at the front and we ended with sports. Do you want me to draw you a quick cartoon? Cool. <laughs> we could do TV listings. Um, this is what happens, um, listeners, when when Harry said he was going to be out of town. <laughs> we're like, ooh. Daddy's away. <laughs> the girls will play. Let's talk about sneakers. and Donald Harry's Trump. listening to this episode like, oh, goodness. No, um, he's not relaxing in his life. All right. Well, this is it for the week. We have a wonderful interview after this um, that was pre-recorded. So our clownish behavior is not involved in it. But, you yeah. know, I think it's a really significant. I started reading the book 2020. It's a really heavy in more ways than one because it's very large physically. But, you know, reliving 2020 as mm-hmm. someone who we all lived it in our own way, mm-hmm. it's been a very deep book to go through. So I'm kind of taking each chapter one at a time. I don't want to yeah. binge read it. I don't so, know if I'm ready, Katie, to be quite honest. I no, mean, I thought that too. Yeah, that's why I've been slow with the book. Yeah, it's just because we all, as you said, we all experienced it very differently. And I thought I was fine. But then I made these videos for my sister who was a, a frontline worker. And she's a OBGYN and babies will come whether there's a yeah. pandemic or not. So I was like sending her these videos, she and my cousin, who are both um doctors, and I thought I was fine. These videos are crazy. Cause I was like, it's spirit week. I would like dress up in the morning and like put on voices and yeah. fur coats. And I was like, I think I was slowly descending into madness. We all were. Um my I bought a fish to sort of, you know, ride out the pandemic with me. He didn't make it after two weeks, Lawrence Fishbowl, R.I.P. So it was just, it was, it was just a wild time, and then we're still like going to work. Yeah, I, I actually, it, it's a hard time for me thinking about it, but the book has been helpful, and I hope the listeners, you know, enjoy this interview that we have coming up next. Okay, let's let's uh, jump into why the two of us are here this morning. You know, you described this book as a, a social autopsy of the year twenty twenty. And you reference using the year 2020 as a title, both as a reference to the calendar year and also as an allusion to looking at something with clarity and acuity. So let's start off. What made you focus on 2020 as opposed to the past three years of of COVID-19? Well, I think 2020 was an especially powerful moment and a formative moment. You know, the same way that we sometimes think we develop as people from all of our experiences, but there's something especially formative about early experiences. I think that's true for this crisis as well. 2020, it seems to me, was not just a single crisis. It was a series of cascading crises, the pandemic, 
the assault on democracy, the murder of George Floyd, the spike in violence, the abandonment of cities. We really went through a lot. And it's my view that we were traumatized. And in the same way, again, that some of us as adults get through our traumas by repressing them. There's this great sociological concept that I like called the will not to know. I think we've repressed what we went through in 2020. And to our collective detriment, we've repressed it because so much happened to us that changed us. And you know, I've just written this essay that came out this morning about the fact that long COVID is not just a medical condition, it's also a social disease. And I think there are all kinds of signs that we're still suffering from it today. I think this is great that you and others are now spending this time reflecting back uh, for exactly the reason that you've highlighted. You know, what I've seen in the popular literature is a lot of rewriting of decision-making during that time on one side. And then another side, I see a lot of incredible anguish, particularly from those who had long COVID or those who lost very close family members wondering not why this was a hoax, but why it wasn't taken more seriously. And you highlight in your book a lot at the very beginning about this, this challenge of dire yet distant threats and, and how a principal in Chinatown is already hearing about the dangers through the families in their school. So let's go back a little bit. What, what do you think is, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the rewriting of history, but I'm curious about how you think of dire yet distant threats now compared to then. Yeah, so it's one of the first ideas in the book actually comes from something I was teaching at the time. I'm a, I'm a sociologist. I teach at New York University. And in the early days of the pandemic, as it happened, I was teaching a course on the social challenges of climate change. It's a big lecture course I teach often. And I generally talk early in the course about this thing social scientists call the paradox of cognition. And the paradox is that it's very difficult for us to get excited and exercised by threats that might be existential and profound, but are a little bit remote, you know, more remote than the, the car that's about to hit us or the guys across the street carrying a baseball bat, right? Or the spike in crime or immigration or what have you. So climate change really suffers from this problem, right? It's, it always feels like it's this major issue, but not today. It's not the most important thing for me today. And the, the paradox in climate change is by the time it becomes the most urgent thing on our minds, it would probably be too late to do anything significant about it. So we have to get over that. When I brought up this subject in class, I asked people in January, February 2020, you know, for example, how many of you are concerned about this new coronavirus they found in China? And when I first asked that question, what came back to me, like 50 blank stares and one student who raised his hand and I asked him how he knew about it. And it turned out he was Chinese, not Chinese American. He literally had just gotten off a plane from China. He somehow, you know, was one of the first people to get out. He's come to New York to do study abroad. So nobody knew about it. And I kept asking that question over the course of the next several weeks and gradually you know, more people raised their hands until it was the only thing happening to us. And in fact, it was such an urgent thing that the school closed, our economy closed, people had to go back home. I mean, obviously our lives changed in profound ways. And so I think the pandemic was a very hard thing for us to get our head around for a very long time. It took a while for it to register. And even when it was happening, um, for a bunch of complicated reasons that maybe we'll get into, a lot of us refused to believe that it was really real. 
you know, we refused to accept it. And unfortunately, one of the chief people who suffered from that delusion was the president of the United States at the time, which, which made it much more difficult to respond. Yeah, this is actually what has been, for me, one of the most challenging things to reflect on. Um, not so much the public reaction, because I've been used to that in my work in public health, but I can tell you from my own experience, I spent a lot of time in, in the 2000s working overseas, trying to help countries with pandemic preparedness plans. And one of the things we never practiced, I can tell you for sure, is what happens if the president or prime minister refuses to believe this is a problem? Yeah. <laughs> we went through all sorts of other scenarios, but we didn't go through denial at the highest political right. level. So what's sort of the counterfactual? How might things have been different had our leadership made the point to the public that, yes, this is distant, but it's dire and you need to do something? Well, you know, I should just say briefly that in the very beginning of the book, I write about this amazing story where there's a company called the Princess Cruise Lines. Maybe some of you listening have taken a Princess Cruise. I never have. And within a few weeks of each other in the beginning of 2020, the Diamond Princess left port in Tokyo and the Grand Princess left port in San Francisco. And a few days after they left, passengers got COVID on both ships. And in Japan, they turned the ship around. They brought the ship back into the harbor. They sent a bunch of epidemiologists on board. They quarantined. They explained to everyone on board what was happening and why they were being quarantined. They did a bunch of research to try to figure out how the disease was spreading. They carefully brought people back onto land and got people treated when they needed to be treated. And it was hard and they messed up some stuff, but they learned a tremendous amount from that experience. Like for instance, they learned about the fact that you could be an asymptomatic carrier. They learned that air circulation really mattered. Some big things that affected Japan's uh, policymaking from then on. And Japan shared that with the world. Japan, by the way, is one of those countries that had just tremendous performance in terms of its public health during the pandemic. It started by taking it seriously on day one. Many of you might remember what happened in the US. This is the story where the ship turns around and the president, I, I, can't, I, I can't remember what the guy's name, the president at the time, something, I, I can't remember. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the president refused to let the ship come back into the port, right? This is where he says, I, I like our numbers where we are. You know, we only have 15 people with COVID in the United States. I'm not going to let this ship of people back into the US and it's going to mess up our numbers. This thing is just going to go away. So for a while, they don't let the ship come back, even with Americans on it. Then, fascinatingly, they say it can come back, but it's not going to San Francisco where it was supposed to come. They send it to Oakland. And, you know, I used to live in that area. I used to live in Oakland. There's a symbolism that matters here. Like San Francisco is this, you know, gem of a city. It's affluent. It's more white. Black Oakland is stigmatized in the American imagination for being a working class minority city. And they send it to Oakland. Then what happens is they don't really tell people on the ship exactly what they're doing. The quarantine is not executed very well. They don't learn a lot from what's going on. They put people on buses and bring them to military bases where they're supposed to be tested, examined. And a bunch of people refuse to be tested and refuse to quarantine. They just leave. Like, I'm American. You can't hold me here. And they go. And we have no idea how many people spread COVID because of that. But for me, that story speaks to the difference in what can happen if you take COVID very seriously from the beginning. And I fear that far more people died and got sick in the United States than needed to. 
because our president and our political leadership just refused to take it seriously when they had a chance. It's actually one of the most, one of the counterfactuals that I've wondered a lot about. It's probably safe to say that both you and I have the same feelings about the former president, <laughs> particularly as it relates to this. But one of the things I wondered about, and I was actually working for CDC, I was based in Africa at the time. And so, you know, it's obviously very closely following how different countries followed this. I sort of imagine that, you know, especially based on the fact that that Republicans in prior administrations, particularly George W. Bush, had been so strong on pandemic defense. He was the one who really put in tremendous amount of money for overseas USAID and CDC operations. Well, what if President Trump had framed COVID-19 as a Chinese bioweapon being unleashed on the U.S.? They required maximum civil defense initiatives. He could have said that this is why the reason needed to close its borders and to people and trade and, and rely only on American manufacturing for protective equipment, ventilators, drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics. I mean, he could have even declared American-made N95s as the optimum defense and and branded them with his name and sent them to his home. I, I always wondered that, you know, so many of the things that we heard were policy priorities, isolation, stopping trade and migration, infrastructure could have been mobilized for both for public health as well as for his own political needs. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I say something very similar. It had Trump frame this as a campaign, a national campaign, against a shared threat. He could have used the language of you know, military defense that so many strongman leaders like to use. He could have done all kinds of things in his name to assert his power, to be more protective, to justify the wall. There's a number of things that Trump could have done that would have been very much in keeping with his style of politics that I think would have dramatically improved the country's capacity to protect itself from COVID. It probably would have generated a whole bunch of other problems. It would have created a lot of other pathologies. And I should be clear that, you know, in the book, I write about the pandemic and COVID features prominently, but it's, it's a book about all of these crises uh, and the ways in which they're wrapped up in each other, the crisis of democracy being one of them. But I think that had he done all that and also said, this is the Trump vaccine, yeah. you know, and we're going to call it, you know, we're, we're going to, there, there's the Ivana option and there's the Ivanka option and there's the Erica, like, had he just named everything after his family as he likes to do and, and embrace the vaccine, we would have a totally different reality right now. I'm, I'm quite sure that Trump would still be president had he risen to the occasion of COVID. And it's worth saying just how badly the U.S. performed by comparative standards against other countries that are like ours. And it's and here I want to be clear, it's not just about deaths and disease, although it certainly is a lot about deaths and disease. We also grew more divided. We grew more ideological. We grew more distrustful. We developed disdain for each other. We turned violent towards each other in all kinds of strange ways. And that's a lot about the chaos that came from the style of leadership we had that year. Yeah, I definitely want to, I think one of the most powerful aspects about your book are these, the interweaving of sort of this large sociological and political and, and health analysis with these incredibly deeply personal and, and touching stories. But so I want to dive into some of those. But before I do that, I, I want to stick on another leadership issue, which also relates to this question about counterfactuals and the importance of the role our political leaders play in in how each of us at an individual level act and behave. And, and you describe an event known as the Cummings effect in the UK. 
uh, which is some way almost a controlled trial of how public officials behave impacts individual behavior and, and how that then transcends to population effects. So, you know, the difference between in the UK, how people in England responded compared to Scotland and Wales because of this Cummings effect. So maybe you can describe a little bit that for the readers, because I, I just thought it was really a, a really striking example that you can't often find in public policy. No, it's an amazing case. And, and in the book, I really try to leverage these comparisons, you know, across places so that we can make sense of how the disease played out. It's so clear that the virus is one big cause of the disease, but there's all this social and political stuff that really shapes our experiences. And so the Cummings effect refers to a British official who refused to respect the lockdown order that the government had imposed on the population and was caught traveling uh, with his family when the demand from the government was that everyone else stay home. And I think what it revealed to people is the sense that you know, the government, which needed to uh, promote trust and create conditions in which people trusted each other and trusted that they were getting honest and good advice and they were part of a collective effort. When that trust was violated, other people said, well, why, why should I respect these rules and guidelines? And of course, it turned out that after the Cummings effect, there was also the Johnson effect because it was the prime minister who really turned out to be violating his own regulations and ultimately lost his position in power uh, to some great extent because of it. So early on in the pandemic, actually the first thing I wrote about it was in March, 2020, and I, I made the argument, you know, we keep using this concept social distancing and I get why, but the reality is what we needed to survive this stage of the pandemic was physical distancing and social solidarity, right? Physical distancing and social solidarity. We needed to build solidarity, which means a recognition of the ways in which our fate is linked to the fate of our neighbors, which is clearly the case in the pandemic, and the way in which we need to support each other in the name of this common good, which is shared health, if we're going to get through it. And I think these kinds of actions from political officials violating their own rules completely undermine the capacity for solidarity in the populations they're serving. So the U.S. did it. The UK did it, and there are other places in the world that, that had this problem as well. Uh, but there are also some shiny examples of places that managed to build trust and solidarity when they needed it, and their results were quite dramatic. Yeah, I think you, you write in the book that distancing was, quote, sociologically destined to fail. And I think you've highlighted very clearly why that is. And, and I can tell you that I was working on writing the continent-wide strategy for the African continent when I was at the African Union. And we specifically were trying to figure out whether to call it physical versus social distancing. But we settled on social distancing because that had been the term that was used when this was sort of theorized as a way to achieve pandemic control during influenza, pandemic influenza discussions in the 2000s. But it's, it's yet another example to me of in public health about how if you get a bunch of technocrats like pure public health people in the room, they need the input of people from other backgrounds who understand how society functions, how marketing and communications work, and how politics work to achieve the effect they want. That is completely right. And one of the problems, I think, with our collective response to it is we fail to recognize just how difficult it is to share expert knowledge in a way that seems credible and manageable. And we had a problem of expertise in this country and around the world when people struggled to communicate how much uncertainty there was in our response and how 
our policies would have to change as we learn more about this new disease. So for instance, I think the biggest problem from the beginning was the WHO advising people and states not to wear masks, not to require masks. And this was a controversial call. To some, it was a sign that the Chinese were trying to play down the significance of the threat and were using their muscle to lobby the WHO into a policy that didn't make sense, given what we know about coronaviruses. To others, it reflected too much concern about the possibility that masks would run out and that people in uh, medical institutions wouldn't have the ability to secure them or procure them uh, if they recommended them. But it was a little hard to understand, and it took months for the, the science to come in as clearly as it could on the specific case of this new coronavirus and COVID. Right? The distinction being the WHO didn't really respect the science about other coronaviruses spreading through aerosols. It said we need to have science on this new coronavirus. And when they finally got it, they switched their message. But by then, a lot of people had spent months hearing that they didn't need to wear a mask. And so in the countries that had been affected by SARS in 2003, there was a high uptick in people using masks from the get-go. They didn't need that special messaging. They learned the hard way. But in the US, uh, in much of Latin America, in much of Europe, which were not as affected by SARS and where mask wearing is not part of you know, routine public health, people really resisted. And it was much more difficult to get people to do it, given the communications failure, I think. And so one thing we learned is that just knowing things and telling people what to do is not enough to generate a good policy. We need to put in place some system where we're able to be agile and change our messaging over time uh, with people who have capacity to speak and be respected and heard by different communities. And the big takeaway here is you can't just start doing that in the pandemic and expect it's going to work. You have to build that over time, right? You have to, that, that's a project that societies and states have to take on in advance of the crisis. You can't build the plane while you're flying it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there uh, because I have a lot of thoughts about the future of public health in the United States and how so much of it is going to have to be about how you build that trust through community engagement. But you know, it, so let's see if we can get back to that a little later in the conversation because I want to talk about the mask example a little bit because this, yeah. this has a lot to do with, really everything to do with COVID and our successes and failures, as, as you point out. I have some special insight into this. I was right. one of the, the small handful of representatives from the African continent that was at the first global coronavirus meeting in Geneva in early February. I was actually specifically assigned to the Infection Control Committee, which was almost entirely staffed by academic experts from around the world who work in healthcare facilities. And so the first and most important discussion was what do we recommend for healthcare workers? Because we know from our long history of really of all pandemic diseases that they kind of amplify in hospitals and we need to protect healthcare workers. Yeah. But that same committee was tasked with also the public recommendation. That is the community protection message. And I think this is part of where it failed. I specifically was one of the people that asked, well, isn't recommending cloth masks or any type of face covering at least better than nothing? Like, mm -hmm, shouldn't mm -hmm. we at least give people something to do while we work out this uncertainty? Uh, but there were really kind of two cognitive problems. One was the, what I call the anchor of certainty, this sort of 
need to say that we're only going to recommend masks if we know that they guarantee protection in everybody that uses them, uh, which is not really what people want, right? We don't wear seatbelts because they're 100% effective. We wear them because they're partially effective. That was one problem. And the second problem was this uh, supply constraint issue and, and wrapping up an issue about supplies into an issue about uh, public recommendations. And, and maybe the third issue, I guess, is the one you point out, which is just sort of the hubris of, of people or the, the narrow-mindedness of people who only work in hospitals, not understanding how the social messaging might be damaged by this. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's all right. I mean, I think it's amazing to me to this day, the skepticism people have about masks working. And what I generally say is, if you think masks don't work, find some healthcare workers and ask them about the death and disease among the medical workers in their hospitals when they had masks. Because when hospital workers had masks and, and wore them properly, it, they worked. It's actually amazing how much they work. Masks didn't work if you had an inappropriate mask, like a bandana, and you, you wore it half the time. And sometimes you wore it under your nose. And we kind of failed to really figure out how to convey to people how important it was to have the right equipment and to use it well. But we also failed to produce it. That's a really important part of this story. Many countries in the world reacted immediately to the news that there was a new coronavirus by ramping up production of masks and finding a way to uh, make sure that everyone in the population got it. They just they had special systems of production and distribution. And here's another area where the U.S. Just, just did nothing like this. You know, perhaps we're too dependent on foreign suppliers that weren't providing them to us, and we need to learn to produce our own. But one has to think that this is a, a production problem that the U.S. government had the capacity to solve. As you know, there's a chapter in the book that's about the, the conflict over masks. And the story with masks is so fascinating to me because who would have thought that this little piece of fabric would get invested with so much weight and significance that it would literally become the thing that drove us to be more violent against each other and, and pulled us apart. And the story of the mask in America is fascinating. Yeah. And, and I, I also, what I really liked was your ability to dig into some of the history of East Asia and how the mask became this symbol over the past century of modernity and hygiene. Whereas in the U.S., it became a symbol of a muzzle and restricted freedom. You know, I spent a lot of my time worrying about sort of the next pandemic. So when the next, and I say when, not if, when the next respiratory virus pandemic occurs, what is the pathway here in the United States to convince more Americans that masks are a symbol of modernity and hygiene? Because it's not just a supply problem then, right? It's a demand problem, yeah. Yeah, I'm so much better at the social science part than the policy part. I don't, I, I don't know if I have the answer, uh, unfortunately. I, I, don't know, I don't know how to persuade people. And I think we, we're really in a, in a pickle here on public health in the U.S. because there are societies on Earth over history that have had great plagues and public health crises, and they've responded by shoring up their protection systems, right? By doing more on the policy side, by putting in better surveillance systems by coming up with better plans for hospitals and care by you know developing vaccines and promoting them in the population by sharing knowledge about various prevention measures you know washing hands or you know things like that and in the US because this became so 
partisan and politicized because through the pandemic, we came up with like Republican medicine and Democrat medicine and Democrat vaccines and Republican anti-vaccines and scientific authorities whose capacity to tell us the truth was widely respected, not especially partisan. Actually, just a few decades ago, Republicans had more trust in scientists and medical doctors than Democrats did. But everything has changed now. And so I think getting Americans to wear masks if there's a, a bird flu pandemic or some other virus, it's going to be a very tricky thing because the mask is no longer, the chapter in the book is about this, the, the mask is no longer just a, a device to keep us healthy. The mask is now a symbol of our identity and our politics. You know, when I wear a mask, I'm telling you whose side I'm on, right? And I know we think of that as a, a thing that people on the right do, but it's not just about the right. I mean, there's this amazing thing that happened in the U.S. when the CDC announced that the U.S. was going to have mask mandates or guidelines promoting masks. And the president got on television that first day and said, the CDC is recommending that everyone wear a mask in public. Personally, I'm not going to do it, you know, undermining the policy. Then it became clear to people in his world that actually he really didn't want people to wear a mask because he saw the mask as a sign of weakness and cowardice, fear. Mike Pence goes to Mayo Clinic and refuses to wear a mask while he's with patients and doctors. And so everybody on the right in his inner circles refusing to wear a mask. That's one side of it. But the other side is that Democrats and liberals then went on social media and they, they changed their profile pictures, right? So it became, you know, Eric hashtag wears a mask, Kleinenberg. And I had a photograph of myself with a mask and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, the, you know, all of our political officials had you know, images of themselves and commercials with them wearing a mask. And we all kind of embraced the mask, not just as a public health thing, but also it became a totem, right? To, to think about this anthropologically, like it became a symbol of our identity, what we believed. And then suddenly when you went outside, you could read the social situation. And I think everybody could relate to this experience of like feeling angry when you saw someone who didn't treat the mask the way you did. Mm. whoever you are. And, and then suddenly we have viral videos going around the United States of people literally killing each other in grocery stores and gas stations and public parks, beating each other up, screaming at each other. What a fascinating cultural turn. So you ask me <laughs> in the next pandemic, how are we going to get people to wear masks? Uh, I, it's a very tall order, isn't it? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, and, and what I often you know, tell people who are, you know, coming up in public health or advising other people is that, and, and this is challenging because we always want to believe in our, in our world that we have solutions to these, is that these are fundamentally political and sociological problems that, you know, we in public health can help, help to solve, but we are not the main determinant of this, you know, and, until there are these other larger forces, particularly through our political process and, and maybe somewhat through media and mass communication to build trust and people aren't going to willing to sacrifice, right? And, and so much about the mask was kind of about sacrifice. Am I willing to do something that is a bit uncomfortable and feels unnatural for the sake of strangers? Yeah. You, you know, you asked in the very beginning of our conversation about this idea of social autopsy. And we let it go a little bit, but let's bring it back in right now because the, the idea of social autopsy is that our conventional way of understanding why 
someone dies is you know, we rely on this amazing scientific technique, the, the autopsy, right? You, you open up the body and you find the organs that break down. And by identifying the source of the physiological breakdown, you also can explain death. I got no problem with it. It's an amazing thing that we've figured out how to do that, right? The story of the medical autopsy is an amazing story. But it's my contention that, especially clear in events like this, when you're talking about you know, large-scale events that affect entire populations, it's not just our physiological condition that determines who lives and who dies. And if we want to understand you know, why some nations had higher death rates than others, if we want to understand why some neighborhoods had higher death rates than others, we need to kind of open up the skin of the city or of the country, look into the body politic and see, you know, what is it that makes some places break down and what is it that made other places resilient? Because as much as, you know, I think we failed in the United States to stand up to this moment, there are examples of other places including places that were led by quite ideological right-wing political leaders that fared significantly better, right? In Australia, the life expectancy went up, I believe. The excess death level was lower than it normally is. They didn't have excess death. They had less death than they typically do. Yep. And, and that's an amazing thing. Yeah, people, uh, it's it's really challenging in public health because the disappearance, effectively disappearance of influenza and RSV and other respiratory viruses is yet another example of how physical distance, mask wearing, and certain extent ventilation can actually make our society much healthier. And, and we won't go into it for the purpose of this discussion, but unfortunately, you know, COVID, particularly in a non-immune population, is not the ideal pathogen to be controlled by masks. The masks help, but they're actually much more effective for some other diseases that don't transmit over a long range quite as well as COVID does. So, no, I think I think, I think that's right. It's just you know the hospital example for me does really show that despite that fact, if you wear the right mask in the right way, yep. in the right place, absolutely, it could do miracles. Because if it weren't for that, think about all the doctors and nurses and hospital you know sanitation workers who would have gotten sick and died. So many did an infinite number more would have. Yeah, your, your point about healthcare workers is right on point because if you ask any trades person who works in a field that has to wear some type of safety gear and you come in and try to learn their trade, the first thing they do is emphasize all the reasons why they use the measures that they use, whether it's gloves or goggles or the way they, you know, calibrating equipment before they do it. Absolutely. I want to switch a little bit in this, it will, it will keep in this vein of sacrifice, though, because so much of this is, for me, all about this fundamental philosophical question of, you know, how much we owe others mm. and, and mm. what we do for people, not our family members, but those who are not our family members. And I, I think we can all agree that probably the biggest sacrifice that was being asked was for young people to sacrifice their education and their jobs on behalf of the elderly, primarily the elderly, also the immune compromised. And I was thinking about my own teenage kids who have often complained about, you know, how boomers don't seem to care about their cost of student loans or housing costs. And yet somehow they're not, the elderly aren't willing to sacrifice maybe some of their financial beliefs or wealth mm -hmm. for the youngers. But in this situation, the young were told to stay away from each other and stay away from school and sacrifice the important years of their life. 
you know, what did you learn from your experience? Because you talked to a number of different students across many different sort of socio and ethnic groups in, in New York City. Well, I think your kids made a very shrewd observation. You know, my daughter was in fifth grade when the pandemic started and my son was in eighth grade. And it was a brutal time in one's life to be cooped up at home and isolated. You know, what, well, there are many costs for young people, but one of them uh, was also their mental health. And I think we're seeing still to this day, this kind of other version of long COVID I talked about in the, our young people across America, just the, the trauma of that year generated a lot of anxiety and stress. We talk about loneliness a lot in public health these days, and I do think loneliness is an issue for many people, but there's these other things that are really difficult as well. We did a huge amount to try to protect the lives of older people and frail people. And I don't have a philosophical problem with that. In my view, the ask was appropriate. And in fact, I think it's useful for Americans to know that we never really had a lockdown the way they had lockdowns in other countries. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just China where people couldn't leave their apartments. You know, in, in France, you could only go out for 30 minutes, 60 minutes a day in a very narrow set of places with a, a card that gave you the right to do that for specific kinds of exercise. You know, the, in Italy, people were confined to their homes. In Belize, people were confined to their homes. There were countries all over the world where people were literally not allowed to leave home. And we really didn't do that in the United States for the most part. There are very few places where you just, you were told you couldn't go out of your home. So we did make sacrifices, most notably closing down schools. And that's been the one that people have talked about as the great controversy. Again, one can debate whether that was the right thing or whether we overdid it. I think for me, the, the question is, why haven't we recognized and acknowledged all the things that young people did to help the rest of us? Why haven't we said thank you? Why haven't we thought about scholarship programs for colleges or I think the Biden administration has done a great deal to relieve student debt, but why do we have a party that's so intent on blocking it? And why haven't we forgiven more? I think we, we do owe this generation something. They made tremendous sacrifices and have taken on great costs socially, physically uh, in their development. And there's a chapter in the book in which I you know, draw very heavily on interviews with the university students from very different kinds of campuses with very different economic situations. And what you learn in all of them is this sense that they, they were asked to do a lot and, and not really appreciated or recognized. And so I think what I fear the effect of this is, is young people who feel very disenchanted in America now. They feel distrustful of government, but also of society more generally. And you see that in surveys, you know, people in their 20s express far more distrust of core institutions than other people in this country. And also, I think we might see it in the 2024 elections. Mm -hmm. People in their 20s are saying, I'm not going to vote. They were a huge part of the constituency that came out for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. I think in hope that he was going to really change things. And I think they largely feel like they have not gotten uh, what they needed and wanted. And I have a sense from the numbers that young people are probably not going to show up for Biden in the way they did in 2020. And they might just not show up, period. They might just vote much less. And 
again, that kind of disengagement is something that comes from the way that they were treated. And, and I think we need to reckon with that. Yeah, you talk about this mechanism of how some people coped by social pruning, by, you know, cutting off connections, either because people didn't share their views about COVID or social justice or something else. But of course, there was June 2020, where many others, uh, particularly in urban big cities like New York, coped by joining social movements, the Black Lives Matters protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And, you know, I was in that position. I was sitting in City Hall advising the mayor. We were, you know, working on the entire COVID response. And and it seemed like a very natural sociologic phenomenon. People who had been cooped up, particularly kids who had been left out in finding a way to align themselves and 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 I guess exert some form of power or control over forces that they felt like they just had to receive and they couldn't actually do anything again. So I'm curious sort of what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, it was a way of speaking back, yeah. It's a big part of the book, as you know, what happened in, in, in summer of 2020 when after George Floyd was murdered by police, record numbers of people in the United States and around the world came out to protest. And it was an expression of outrage, you know, moral outrage. Uh, it was a call for racial justice, but I think there was even more to it than that. I think millions of people had spent months at home, locked down, making sacrifices, watching the pandemic play out in ways that were manifestly unjust. All the forms of inequality that shape everyday life in America express themselves in the pandemic as well. The, the map of COVID deaths in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles looks a lot like the map of inequality and people recognize that and they were angry and fed up. And so George Floyd's murder triggered this extraordinary collective response. And for many people, it represented a moment where transformation might happen. We started to talk differently about things like racial justice and economic inequality even in that moment. And we needed that collective life. And younger people, I think, especially needed that collective life. Like the, again, as a, as a sociologist, we have this concept called collective effervescence, which is about the kind of joy that we experience in collective action that we don't really get on our own. You, you know, there's no collective effervescence when you're on Zoom or, you know, swiping on your on your phone, you know, to read Twitter. It's the kind of thing that happens when, when we're together. And one of the great sources of pain in the year 2020 is that people were cut off from collective life, right? Remember how difficult it was for people to stop going to church? Remember how reluctant churches were in synagogues? Uh, these scenes of people who defied the laws because they, they needed to go to synagogue in New York or to church in Texas. And many couldn't understand, you know, what is this about? But there, there's this fundamental human need to convene. And in fact, there's a story in my book about a man from Staten Island who's a bar manager and, you know, he wanted to keep his bar open despite the lockdowns and the idea that people needed to find a way to be with each other. Well, the protest became the vehicle for that. And it was an amazing outpouring and it did represent something beautiful during that year. Mutual aid societies did that as well. I think the challenge is that in the moment when it seemed like anything was possible, you know, everything solid had melted into air Everything was up for grabs. It, it, I think a lot of people got con convinced that there would be some kind of transformation and the transformations haven't really happened. And so I think now the problem is that there's a lot of frustration um, about what we have not been able to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I think of it is it's a bit more of the uh, sort of even harkening back to the beginning of our discussion where we think about these sort of 
slow moving, distant threats that, you know, sort of then suddenly become immediate and, and dangerous. I, you know, my perspective is that there has been change as a result of the George Flipman's, but the appropriate response is it isn't enough, right? And there's also a backlash to it. And so I think that's where the tension becomes. It's, you know, when you work in areas like pandemics, you're trying to prepare for these events and and you're doing things at a small level that, that you hope will make a change. But I, I agree with you. I think that for kids, especially who sacrifice so much, the absence of sort of a revolutionary type change, um, incremental change doesn't excite them. As yeah. a, and I can understand why. Yeah. And, and there was this moment in the heart of 2020 where it, it seemed like maybe something really dramatic and transformative was going to happen. I mean, it was terrifying. It was also exhilarating, that moment, right? I mean, it, it really, you didn't know what was going to happen to the economy. You didn't know what was going to happen to the government. You didn't know what was going to happen to all kinds of social routines. Like, we weren't going to school. We weren't going to the office. The roads were empty government was spending money in a way that seemed unprecedented. And some incredible things happened. Like, for instance, we cut child poverty by record numbers. Uh, it was an amazing commitment to make sure that people who are most vulnerable would be protected. And, and it seemed like, oh, maybe we're going to change the world. But then like a year later, we got rid of the program. <laughs> we sent more children into poverty than ever before in American history. So it's that kind of thing, I think, that's causing a lot of frustration today. It's like... We got to the edge of this, we got to this moral precipice, right? It's like we we're about to do all these things differently, like essential workers, these people who, they don't get paid a lot, but they do this work that we need to get through uh, a tough time. We value them, we respect them. Maybe we'll pay them more, we'll guarantee them health care, you know, we'll honor them. We got to that moral precipice and they were like, no, we're not going to do any of that. Let's go back to the way things always are. And I think people are really angry about that right now. It's, we're still there. That's part of the long COVID. It's like we saw some stuff, right? And and we thought maybe we're going to have to deal with that reality. And now we're, we should get to the revisionism a little bit because now it's like we're, we're talking like none of that happened. No. Yeah, I can I can definitely say from the the health and healthcare and public health perspective, there use that feel like right. So many of us are like, people were clapping for us for two or three months, and then you know that's like you're thinking of the end of March through you know early June, end of May, 2020, and then by the winter of 2020, there's all the truthers online that are like, oh, there's nothing wrong with our hospitals, everything's fine. And I think that part of the disillusionment, part of the understaffing that you see in hospitals and public health is, is a reflection of what you just said, which is the, we thought things were going to get better. We thought we were going to get paid better and get better worker protections and better hours and, and people were going to appreciate us better. But then it turned around and we were suddenly yeah. vilified and, and treated, you know, given the same pay that we had before and, and no more benefits. Well, I think for nurses especially, that's been a really big issue. Um, I actually wrote an article, came out a few weeks ago, in a social science journal about moral injury among nurses. That, you know, there's, in the health field, it's been framed as a problem of burnout, which is kind of, in my view, like putting the responsibility on the workers themselves. Like, oh, you, you didn't have it in you to persevere through this thing and you burned out. You, know, you, you need to build yourself up. But it's really not, I think that's kind of unfair. And the reality is that we asked health workers to do basically impossible things that were traumatizing in horrible conditions, like to take care of too many patients, to to be there with people dying alone and to tell families things that seemed impossible to believe. Um, There's a huge amount of pressure. And I think nurses 
didn't feel like they got the kind of institutional support that they needed from hospitals, even well-meaning hospitals. They just didn't provide it. And there certainly wasn't big bonuses and, you know, lots of vacation and relief that people needed. And it's because, you know, these are institutions that are struggling to get by already, right? We made hospitals pay a price for COVID. A lot of these dysfunctions in our public health system really became apparent. But again, the, for me, the thing is not just that there are dysfunctions, it's that after we saw the dysfunctions, we haven't figured out a way to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, you coined this phrase, pandemic enemy, which you describe as this collapse of a shared social order. And humans are suddenly acting only on their private needs and desires. You say narcissism trumps solidarity. And, and I wonder how much of that enemy persists to this day when, when we think about this need to revise what happened during the pandemic and say, actually, not that many people died or everything we did was was too excessive. You know, how much of that is this need to go back and, and say that, you know, my private needs and desires weren't respected, therefore I have to act as if somehow this event never happened. Is, is that one of the, the connections? I'd, I'd be curious about your thoughts as, as we sort of wrap up here. Yeah, I, I think that is. I, you know, I think that's a, a driving part of this. I think that as we saw government fail us at different levels, convince people who might have thought otherwise, well, I better take care of myself. You know, reduce the unit of our cares from the collective to something more personal. I, I want to be clear that I don't think that's a universal experience. And one of the parts of the book that I enjoyed writing the most was the story of the rise of mutual aid networks, especially in low-income immigrant neighborhoods, by the way. like What Americans did to help each other get through the pandemic is extraordinary. And there's seven people whose stories I write in great detail in the book. Uh, one from every borough of New York, plus an MTA custodian who died early and also a Black Lives Matter activist. But the story of the woman in Queens, Nula Doherty, is the story of the rise of mutual aid. And that is a part of this experience that we shouldn't forget. And it's probably good that we kind of include this towards the end of the conversation because it's not, it's not all darkness, this experience. There, you know, there's something else that happened that was really productive and positive. And actually, you see the legacy today, like the mutual aid networks that started during COVID in New York and around the country that have now transformed and they're helping asylum seekers and new migrants acculturate to big cities. So that's something for us to remember and hold on to and channel in the coming year. But there is also, I think, a real disenchantment that we are reckoning with. And I think a real refusal to take seriously our experience. I think one reason that there is the level of enthusiasm for Trump again in the 2024 election cycle is precisely that so many people have repressed their memory of what happened during that year when he was in charge, you know, we, we have tried to revise the story of that year so that it was much better than it actually was. There's still kind of widespread denial about just how bad the situation was here. And one of the things that remains morally troubling to me is the way in which we accustomed ourselves to having so much death on a daily basis that it just became a part of life. And I think in many ways we grew to accept that. You might remember there was a lieutenant governor from Texas who at one point literally said, older Americans are willing to die if it helps the economy. Um, it's, it's like staggering things that entered uh, into our common conversation, you know, that I didn't expect. And 
so I guess the, the reason I wrote this book is because I believe we need to reckon with this experience. You know, the reason you, you asked in the beginning, why 2020 and not all, all of it? And I think we really need to make sense of how these traumas we experienced individually in our intimate lives and collectively in our political life, how they have remade us and how, you know, how, how we are different today because of it. And I don't think we've even scratched the surface of that conversation. You know, we kind of fall into these ideological talking points, like wear a mask or don't wear a mask, get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. We shouldn't have closed the schools. We should have closed the schools, you know, all, all that stuff. And okay, we can have that conversation, but something profound happened to us, right? We're, we're going to remember this year 2020 for the rest of our lives in some way. It's a, this is the big thing that we experienced. And I think we really need to get beyond the ideology and the talking points and probe how we experienced it and, and how it shaped us. Because if we can't, it's going to be like all other repressed traumas. It will kind of, it will act out on us and make us do all kinds of strange things. Yeah, I'm hopeful that one of the counter approaches to the revisionist history is going to be these stories of hope. And many of them are in your book, you know, about people that, you know, there's, there's sad things, there's, there's political and sociological commentary, but there are also stories of people who really did persevere and helped each other. And my hope is that even if it doesn't come through academic or, or journalism, it comes through art. Right. We've seen this in the decades since the AIDS pandemic, stories that are both tragedy as well as comedy and optimism. And my hope is that we'll get more of that because I, I agree with you. I think that we have to remember not just the, the trauma that we had, but also the moments of joy for those of us who did make it to the other side. And, and there's going to be the survivor's guilt. There's going to be all the other feelings. But but really embracing what, what humans did well is, to me, the only hope for us to you know, maybe come closer together, you know, because you often highlight in the book about how people started to stay further apart. Well, thank you for this conversation. It's been terrific. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. I really appreciate the book and I, and I hope people uh, get a chance to read it because it's, it's a good way to reflect on our own personal experiences is also what our, what our duty is to others as well. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is headquartered at the city a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. You can find it all freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc. And you can chip in to support that work if you'd like at thecity.nyc slash give. The podcast receives support from P&T Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. And from Bouldering Project Brooklyn, which has world-class bouldering terrain, a heated yoga studio, a fully equipped fitness center, a co-working space, and a dedicated youth climbing room that hosts after-school programming and birthday parties. Go to brooklynboulderingproject.com to find out more. FAQ NYC is an affiliate of the Colin Powell School at CUNY City College, where Dr. Christina Greer is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars Inaugural Fellows. And we're an affiliate of the Flaming Hydra newsletter, a collective of 60 writers and artists, including Harry Siegel, our executive producer, delivering a cooperatively owned new newsletter to your inbox you'll actually want to open. See more and subscribe at flaminghydra.com. Our hosts for this episode were Christina Greer and me, Katie Honan. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. And thank you to our guests, Jay Varma and Eric Kleinenberg for the Vital City conversation about COVID and the year everything changed.